Hey everyone, welcome to Women's Work, Rising, Leading, and Thriving, produced by the Institute for Women, Wellness, and Work at Ursuline College. I'm Gina Messina, and this is a podcast that empowers women to recognize ourselves as the leaders we've been waiting for. Today, it is my great pleasure to be talking with Blessing Omaku, Deputy Director of Goalkeepers at the Gates Foundation. Blessing, it is such a privilege to talk with you. I am such a huge admirer of your work and all of the things you've been engaged in. Um, I also sometimes feel like we're really kindred spirits in the things that we have shared passion for. And your work on gender equity is just outstanding. So I've read over your bio uh, several times, and I love the way that you talk about yourself. And one of the things that you said is that you are a lawyer turned policy wonk. And I wonder if you can share with us what that means and, you know, how your journey has led you to this point. Thank you so much for having me. I think it's an honor to be on your podcast. And I remember how we connected last year and I went through your bio and your tech talk and I was like, oh my goodness, this is definitely a kindred spirit and we need to connect. I was doing some work around gender and religion and I was so grateful that you made the time to speak with me. So truly a pleasure to be here. Um, my journey into policy. So I always thought I was going to be a lawyer, right? Like right from when I was a kid. And I think it's that thing of when you talk a lot, which I do, and, and you know how to argue everyone says you should be a lawyer. Um, and I can go into kind of other reasons why I wanted to go into law. But I, I never really understood the American legal system, which is another <laughs> completely different caveat. I, I always had the dream of going to law school and ended up in law school, got a scholarship to go to GW Law in D.C. And the first year of law school, I was like, yeah, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> you know? I, I had I literally was clueless about the American legal law. System. So I thought that I could go and just do the things that I wanted to do, which was human rights law and women's rights law. That was what I was always passionate about. And then you go to your first year of law school, you realize you have to do all these things like torts and contracts and constitutional law. And I was like, yeah, this is exactly not what I want to do. But I spent, you know, my first summer, like you do in law school interning. And I tried the most social justice thing I thought I could do, which was working for an immigration law firm, a small immigration law firm. And I enjoyed that. But I realized that what really makes me come alive is doing more the design of the broader um, policy changes, like the macro stuff versus individual cases. And so in my second and third year of law school, I decided to try different things. Um, I interned with the UN um, and I worked, with, I worked with the UN in Nigeria and, and worked on trafficking policies and policies for child protection. I also worked with the Department of Justice in, in the U.S. here and I worked in the child obscenity and exploitation sex, uh, section and always was passionate about doing work that has to do with women and children. And so those two things made me realize that my passion is really to do work that influences broader macro changes. And so right after law school, I ended up going back to Nigeria. So I'm Nigerian American and have lived in both countries, um, almost in equal parts. But I ended up going back to Nigeria and working in government. I worked for a member of our parliament there and she chaired the human rights committee. And so that was really exciting. Fresh out of law school, really young, and she gave me so much trust. She would send me to panels and, and to go speak for her and to go engage with the different government stakeholders. And it was always interesting because I'm, I'm in panels and in meetings with senators and members of the House. And they're like, who is this young girl in this space? But she had so much trust for me. And that really just opened my eyes and gave me my, my feet in the policy space, which I'm grateful for. 
and it connected with what I, I always wanted to do. So from an, from undergrad, I was doing human rights work. Um, I was that student who was doing all the, the policy stuff and going to different campaigns and going to, you know, things to march on Congress and then, you know, signing petitions and stuff. And so the dots connected in that way. And I never ended up practicing law full time in the traditional sense. I've always been in development and doing work around human rights and women's rights. That's amazing. Um, so you have incredible passion for women's rights, gender rights, human rights, and you've really dedicated so much of your energy to this, which led you to your now position with the Gates Foundation as Deputy Director of Goalkeepers. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what it's like working for the Gates Foundation and how it's allowing you to really move forward with your own your own goals and expectations for making positive change in the world. Right. Yeah. So human rights has always been a passion for my, of mine. And that comes from my upbringing as a daughter of faith leader. So my parents were pastors in Nigeria and my father, when we, so I was born in the U.S. and we moved to Nigeria when I was young, moved back to Nigeria. My parents were going to start a church. And during that time, Nigeria had a military regime. So it, it was a military dictatorship. And my father was very outspoken against the government and the human rights violations that were going on during that time. And I, I remember one Sunday, actually, when he, he came home and said, you know, if I don't come back, you know, if, if something happens, if I get arrested, because he had just preached a sermon about the, the government. And I think some of it had gone into the papers. Here's what you do. Go back to the U.S. I will be OK. And so just seeing that courage from a young age, really, there was no choice for me but to do human rights work. Women's rights, I'm sorry, I'm going around in circles, but women's rights for me came from, so my father passed away when I was 15 um, and he had cancer. And growing up in Nigeria, there are cultural expectations around, or cultural norms, I should say, around what happens when a man dies. And so when my father was really sick, people began to say, oh, it must be his wife who was doing what we call juju, you know, traditional medicine to kill him and take over the church or whatever. And he, um, I'll never forget a night, people from his village, people who I had never met came to our home to take my father away because they believed that my mother was trying to kill him. Cultural norms. And I remember somebody saying, I wish you were a boy. I wish you were, because if you were a boy, as the first child, you would have a say, you would get to intervene. And that for me was when I got really upset because I had never thought about my gender. My father had raised us in, in a very non-traditional way. Equally, my, my father never raised us with any limitations around what it means to be a woman. And so this was the first time that my gender was a barrier and a constraint in a very real and tangible way. And it was at that moment that I said to myself, I am going to become a lawyer because I want to fight for women's rights and I want to be powerful so that this won't happen to other women. Because I watched my mother who was educated, had some influence as a pastor herself, but still was very limited by cultural norms. Fast forward to, to the question that you actually asked me before I went in this roundabout circle. Doing the work that I was doing and the research I was doing around law and women's rights, what I realized really early is that you can do all this policy work, but if mindsets aren't changing, if cultural norms aren't changing, you can't really drive change. So think of my mother who, when my father was sick, was educated, had influence, had, you know, we weren't like rich, but was, was you know, middle class and had, you know, means, but still was limited in that moment to make decisions because of cultural norms of what a woman can do and how a woman shows up in situations. And so after many years of kind of doing this development work and working in policy, I began to see again and again, and it took me back to that childhood moment of realizing that you really have to work on mindset change. And so that led me to setting up something called the She Tank, 
which was a way to think about how do we have conversations around gender in ways that are accessible. And during that time, I was working full time with an organization called The One Campaign led by Bono. But I was also doing some on the side. It was my side hustle. And that work led me to the Gates Foundation because they found out about my work on gender. And so they invited me to join this thing called Goalkeepers. And Goalkeepers is something the foundation does to advance the global goals, um, the SDGs that the UN decided on in, um, in 2015 to make the world a better place. So these are 17 goals, one of them being gender equality to make the world a better place by 2030. And so I got involved with Goalkeepers as a goalkeeper and then was invited to be on the board. A year later, I created a Melinda Gates session on gender equality and then was asked to apply for this role, which I did, and I am now part of the foundation. And for me, the reason why I wanted to be, um, why I decided to take on this role, it was two things. One was I realized, what is a space where I can do the most good? And the Gates Foundation is the largest philanthropy in the world, works in many countries, works with governments. And this was a space that would allow me to take the work that I was doing in a small scale and have more influence. And that for me is what motivates me to be at the foundation. The second thing was, where is a place where I can really contribute to elevating other voices? So even though how I met you as I was designing the strategy around gender and faith is I wanted to find women who were doing faith work and different strategies that we work on. I keep thinking about how can I elevate other voices? How can I bring in voices that the foundation wouldn't know about? And so I continually work on elevating voices, on bringing in unusual suspects into our work. And that motivates me in this space. And that was really long-winded. Apologies. <laughs> no, no, I'm like so fascinated and I appreciate everything that you're sharing. And I think that anyone who listens to this is going to find such value in hearing your voice. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because I know with Goalkeepers, you're doing this work around gender and you were the co-curator of the Melinda Gates Goalkeepers event on gender bias. And you gave yes. this amazing talk. And one of the things that you said is, if you have a brain, you have bias. Mm. And I was like, wow, that is such an important statement and, and such a true statement. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that and you know where you think we can work to acknowledge our own bias and right. work towards you know shifting that for ourselves so we're part of the greater movement for change. Such a great question. So yes, I got to curate that session for Melinda Gates on bias, which was fascinating. And for, for those who may not know what Goalkeepers is, um, I started to talk about when we just, um, from the previous question about the SDGs, the global goals that the UN established in 2015. And there's 17 global goals that range on everything from no poverty to climate action to education. The fifth goal is gender equality. And when we're thinking about what do we say about gender equality last year? Melinda Gates is a fierce advocate for gender equality. Bias was such a great way to approach it because bias impacts all of us. So we all have different biases, right? Like I know that I have biases in my own work that I'm constantly grappling with. Um, and it's something that each and every person has. And it was fantastic for that session to get to work with experts like Jennifer Eberhardt, who I highly recommend her book. Um, it's called Bias, Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt. And she has a TED Talk as well on this. Um, but experts like her and others who really just trained us on bias and how we think about it. Another incredible book is by Caroline Criado Perez called Invisible Women, where you see how bias impacts every aspect of our world. It impacts design. So think about, you know, pharmaceuticals and, and how drugs are designed and often men are the default body. Think about spaces and all those things, but in a very personal way, what I have realized in my work is that conversations matter. 
when I was in law school, I took a class on race and racism. And a professor of mine said that bias cannot stand up to contact consistently, meaning that the more that you engage with people who are different from you, the more that you have those conversations, it's really hard to continue to have the same biases. And that's what I find to be true in my life is that the more I engage with people who are different from me and learn about them, that the biases I have, it's hard for them to continue to, to exist. And so I'm a big proponent of having conversations of doing the work to educate yourself and to open up space for others to give you feedback when you might have biases and not be aware of them, for example, in the workplace. So that's been something that I continue to work on. Um, and I think it's fantastic that the world do things like Black Lives Matter is, is now open to more conversations like this. So that, that's an exciting part of the moment that we're in right now. That is wonderful. My brain is going in so many different directions as I'm listening to you talk. And I, I appreciate what you're saying about the need for dialogue if we're going to shift bias, right? right. Um, that we need to be in conversation. And I interestingly just had a conversation with a woman about why isn't there a movement that has spawned, you know, after COVID and seeing so many women either losing their jobs or being pushed into the false choice of leaving the workforce, right, to take care of their families, because it's such, it's, it's still con considered traditionally women's work. So right, we're right. dealing with this massive she session, which I think is, you know, a huge step backwards and is going to create a lot of difficulties for women in reestablishing those leadership positions and those roles engaged in various ways in our uh, societies. And, and her question is, why, why isn't there a big movement? And my initial thought was, I think there isn't enough knowledge about what the real issue is. And I think that those who would be like in a position to create policy change don't have the experience of what it's like to be pushed into a false choice to uh, leave your career or to lose your job based on these kinds of issues. And so how do we integrate the conversation and how, first of all, help us to see how this is an intersectional conversation. And secondly, how, how we can encourage all genders to recognize that we are all impacted by these issues. Mm, yeah, no, such a great question. The first thing that comes to mind is that so many movements are happening, have been happening. You're part of these movements for gender equality in your work. And like you said, the biggest thing is that there isn't a loud enough microphone for some of these issues. And even where there's a microphone, people haven't cared enough. And I think what it comes down to is privilege and power, because for so long, men have had the privilege of not having to do um, unpaid work. Women carry at, at, at a level that's like two to three times more the rate of men the burden of unpaid care work. And in a very practical way, when you begin to shift that, what it means is that men have to do more work. And so it's really that loss of privilege that I think many people in policy, which happens to be more men, um, don't care about. Or sometimes I see that even women who, for example, have higher economic status and thus don't grapple with this in the same way as lower income women do, there's a tendency not to fight and push for these issues as much as they should when they're in positions of power. I think it was uh, Representative Ayanna Presley who said that when change happens, it's either because people see the light or they feel the fire. And I think that right now, there are two things that need to happen. We need to continue doing that work of creating light, of 
having conversations of popular culture and making some of these issues more relevant and more mainstream. And then there's work that needs to be done on the fire end policy shifts that make it more possible. For example, in, in, in some countries, there, there are better policies for paternity leave for men, um, which we don't have in the U.S. And so we need those kinds of policy shifts that really make it more normal and um, more socially acceptable, I think, for men to participate in this. And so I think it's that balance between light and fire that will continue to get us to this space. I'm hopeful. I think that this moment that we're in, there was a New York Times article, I think two, a week or two ago about the moment that women are going through, I think it was called the primal screen. And so I think that now people are becoming more cognizant in this moment of COVID, of the burden that women have been carrying for generations. And so in some ways, I'm hopeful that we're in a moment of change. And I think we have to continue to do those two things, the light and the fire to push change through conversations, but also through policy changes. So appreciate that, that statement, the light and the fire and how that's so necessary. I have one last question for you. Yes. Um, you've had this incredible journey. And for, for women who are wondering what they can do, how can they get engaged in the conversation? How do they find a path to be part of a movement for positive social change? What would you, what would you say to them? Yeah, no, I think this is such a great moment to get involved. I think the thing about COVID is it kind of, it didn't equalize us because, you know, there's no equality even in COVID, but in some ways it allowed us to participate in movements in the same way. So, so much is happening online now. So many conversations are shifting online that wouldn't have been the case in the past. For example, conferences that were only in person are becoming virtual. Dialogues, panels are, are happening virtually. And so what I'll encourage everyone to do is to first of all, think about what moves you? What part of this movement moves you? I think we all have a part to play in the movement. And I always say that like the movement needs different kinds of movers, right? There are people who do this work through creative. If you're a creative person and you want to participate in gender equality, whatever movement moves you through the creative space, go online, go on social, find people who are doing this work and figure out ways to plug in. There are, are artists who are using um, their art. There are filmmakers. There are podcast creators. You know, think about how you want to engage. The other thing I will say is change happens in small ways. So we often think, oh, I have to go on the streets and I have to like protest. And for some people, that's actually not even a physical reality. People who are differently able, for example, can't go and be a part of movement on the streets. But think about what are the ways in my community I can create change? Um, it can get very exhausting sometimes to think about all the different ways that you can be a part of the movement, all the different issues. And how I ground myself is realizing I can't be a part of every movement, but I can think about the movement that, that is important to me and how to engage in a small way, whether it's in conversations with my friends, whether it's sending money to an organization. It doesn't have to be a big donation, but donating to people who are doing work. This is Black History Month, and I'm thinking about women of color who are doing different kinds of work. There's so much information. Um, if you just go on and think about what matters, whether it's maternal health, there are people like Dr. Joya Creer Perry, who is a big advocate of her work. She leads a movement called Black Mothers Matter. Please Google her. You can support movements like that. If it's just thinking about how to share and, and amplify other people who are doing fantastic work. Last summer, I got to be part of um, a, a project called Share the Mic, where white women handed over their platforms to Black women and, and gave them space to share their experiences navigating. 
And in small ways, you can do that. It's amplifying the mic. It's creating space. Some things I do consistently in my day-to-day work is when projects come up in the, at the Gates Foundation, when opportunities come up, I think about who are women of color that I know that wouldn't ordinarily get a space to engage that I can just put their name up there and say, hey, you should speak to this person. I recommend reaching out to that person. So there's so many different ways to engage. And bottom line is find out what matters to you and how you want to engage. Research, there's so much online and, and connect in that way. Listen to this podcast. I think this podcast is great. Share it. That's one way to amplify the work that you're doing. And, and I'm so just moved by the work that you do. Dr. Gina, I think the way that you make, you make cultural issues accessible. Like when I went on your site, I was just really excited about the fact that you are in academia <laughs> and academia can feel so wonky and so inaccessible. And the fact that you are doing this work of gender and faith and religion in a way that people who are not academics can engage. That to me is movement work. That is shifting work. That is taking things that have been locked in ivory towers and making it accessible for average for the average person who might not be in academia. So much appreciation for your work. I really look up to you. Um, and I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing in the Catholic space and the gender space and the religious space and the online space. Um, and so keep doing that um, and your website as well. Thank you for the work that you do. I, I'm so humbled by that blessing. I am. I'm so humbled by that. I thank you. Um, that is so lovely. And I want to tell everybody, because I know they can't see you in this podcast, <laughs> that you're wearing this amazing shirt that says, I'm rooting for everyone. And I love it. And I think that absolutely speaks to the to your spirit and, and the person that you are and the incredible things that you are doing in the world. And thank it is you. such a privilege to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much. I'm so honored that you would have me on your podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening in today. And to learn more about our guests, visit our website at womenwellnesswork.ursuline.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to Women's Work on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to your podcasts.